What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. The Fed is about to hike rates again, but the market is already betting they'll be cutting rates before too long. Will Powell be forced to change course, and can the Fed still engineer a soft landing here? One of our guests insists it's not too late based on one dynamic he's seeing in the labor market, and it's one we haven't talked much about. Plus, it is the busiest week of earnings this season, with 20% of the S&P reporting. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on a key chip name, a freight bellwether, and a consumer behemoth we'll be watching very closely. And Tesla coming off its best week since mid-2013. But Carter Worth says it's time to take profits or even short it if you're looking to get involved. He joins us with what in the charts makes him say that. But first, let's start with the markets. This rally has turned into a sell-off. Dom Chu with the numbers. It is, and we are right now just at or near session lows right now. Kelly, to your point, it's red across the screen. The Dow Industrial is down about 125 points, 33,850 the last trade there, off about one-third of 1%. The S&P 500 on a broader measure is down roughly 1% or 38 points to 4,032, so still above 4,000. At the highs of the session, for context, we were down seven points. At the lows of the session, down 39. So again, right at the lows of the session as we speak. And the Nasdaq Composite continues to be that epicenter for volatility, both on the upside and the downside. That tech-heavier trade for the Nasdaq Composite, 11446 down 175 points. That's a 1.5% loss there. So again, really the underperformer in today's trade. Interest rates are still part of the discussion. Let's give you a reset on where things stand right now with key parts of the yield curve across different maturities in the Treasury side, of course, with a big Fed interest rate meeting coming up this week. And of course, as Kelly points out, the busiest week of earnings season for S&P 500 companies. Two-year Treasury notes, 4.26%. The 10-year benchmark note yield, 3.56%. The 30-year long bond, 3.66% right now. That is your current state of play for rates. And then if you take a look so far, we're only about four weeks into a trading year in 2023, one that's seen a pretty healthy gain for the markets overall. But it has been three stocks in particular that are either tech or tech-related that have really been driving a lot of the upside action. That is Tesla up 39% on a year-to-date basis. NVIDIA is up 32% and Amazon up about 20. And remember, Kelly, these three stocks all had market downsides throughout the course of 2022. But those thrown away stocks because of perhaps rate and multiple worries are now amongst the biggest gainers this year's trade. We'll see if that trend continues, Kelly. I'll send things back over to you. Oh, yes. This will be a theme throughout the show, Dom. Thank you very much. Let's get right to the big discussion of the day. Is this about to be the Fed's last rate hike? Is a reversal at hand? My next guest says Fed sentiment is at peak hawkishness right now, similar to what we saw. And look at the top of these gold charts there. Peak hawkishness in 2000 before the drop off, 2006. Uh, before the markets drop off, even 2019. And he expects the Fed to turn more dovish after tomorrow's meeting. Joining us now is Torsten Slock, chief economist at Apollo Global Management and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Welcome to you both. Torsten, just we'll start with you. People don't like these kinds of data points because they feel too fatalistic. And they're like, come on, we're not, you know. But why do you think, uh, fundamentally speaking, we're about to see a major change of tune here? Maybe not tomorrow, but in the months to come. 
Because I think the things are actually better than uh, the market is appreciating at the moment. The labor market in particular is very strong, and we have just not seen any signs of weakness. So for every month where inflation continues to tick lower and the economy is still doing well, I still think that that's a very important sign that if we get inflation by the middle of this year, as inflation swaps are trading at the moment to the Fed's target of 2%, well, that means that we are just really a few months away from the market beginning to say, well, this inflation risk that we worried so much about last year is just no longer the significant risk that we thought it was. Yeah, Steve, you know, you all eyes on you. I think, <laughs> the, market, Powell. I, I think the market is exactly where Torsten says it, it's going. The question is whether or not the Fed is there. Exactly. And, and I think what's been interesting is that chart shows me, if they have that chart again, it's measuring Fed speak. The Fed has not changed its rhetoric despite the data changing right. and the market recognizing this. And that's why I, I also came with bullet points, as Torsten <laughs> did. You're not going to be alone. I have three outcomes of this thing. And the first one, if you look at the first bullet point, the hawkish one, is the Fed fights against this move in the market. Um, and and he, they use more rhetoric and <clears throat> try to tighten financial conditions. Which is kind of what people worry is going to happen tomorrow. That's really, that's one of the risks of this meeting here. And the other thing, I thought I'd turn this thing off here. <laughs> the, sec, the second thing is this neutral idea, which is, you go your way, I'll go mine. We'll figure out in the end who's right here. And then the least likely scenario is this dovish one. Maybe the, the Fed says maybe the market has a point on inflation and economic outlook. So we're waiting for Powell and company to get this idea that Torsten's talking about, which to me the market has somewhat embraced. And, and to, to paraphrase what uh, Steve is saying, Torsten, and another commentator this morning said, we all think the Fed will be cutting rates. The Fed itself just doesn't know it yet. I mean, right. the predictive track record, Torsten, is quite poor. Look at last year, exact same meeting. They thought rates were going to 1% by the end of the year. They ended up having to jack them over 4%. Absolutely. No, they, they have the luxury that they don't need to have a strong view on what will happen in six or 12 months' time. But we do need to have that in both in equities and in bonds. So from that perspective, the Fed can more say, we just know one thing today, and that is inflation at 6.5% is too high relative to our 2% target. So that's why it makes sense that the Fed is having this hawkish communication. The only issue now, of course, is that if we do have a soft landing and if the labor market continues to hold up well, if we have had still more labor hoarding and companies holding on to workers, even in the face of this slowdown, we could go through the next several months with a relatively soft landing without that sharp correction that we're also worried about. And it's worth highlighting what Torsten is saying, Steve, because he's basically saying we're in a production recession, not an employment recession. The only asterisk to this being, has that ever happened before? Normally, it just takes a while for it to hit the, uh, the employment part. That's the last place it shows so up. So if, if I could respond to what Torsten is saying without mocking him, but only, <laughs> but only say that the Fed is mocking this idea, which they call the immaculate disinflation. And the Fed does not believe this. And I don't mean to say that I don't believe it or not, but, but the idea of what is immaculate disinflation? It is inflation coming down without much pain at all in the job market or without much decline in GDP. So if, the Fed does not believe this is possible. Which in is general. fascinating because if they don't believe that, they should be the ones starting to pause or cut rates. If they said, no. actually, we think this is possible, we're going to go ahead and keep tightening, then I'd understand that. But if they're saying it's not possible, they're basically saying it's just a matter of time until the labor market softens. So they what's do not going on? believe it's possible to bring down inflation without substantial loosening in the job market. That is their theory. Only Brainerd has a slightly different theory, which is not entirely at odds with the, with the broader thing, but it is sort of, and, and 
But if they're right, should they stop hiking? If they are right, they believe they have to continue to hike, to continue to tighten financial conditions until the labor market loosens. Look, the Fed's not going to be satisfied until job growth is... Fifty thousand a month or less. Wow, uh, Torsten. Steve, yeah, I, so am just I wrong on about that, that Torsten. Yeah, I, go I, ahead. I think. Well, hold on. So I think the important part of that discussion is why did inflation go up? Did inflation go up because of demand, mainly because of stimulus checks, PVP loans, childcare tax credit, or did inflation actually go up because of supply shocks? Supply chains got strained. We were all sitting at home buying stuff on Amazon. Amazon couldn't deliver at the time. So that meant that, therefore, there was a big increase in goods prices. And if it was supply chains that were the reason why inflation went up, we don't need demand destruction. In that case, inflation can come down. All we need is to straighten out the supply chain. So the Fed working papers, as you and I also have talked about, Steve, that look at this, basically trying to quantify how much is demand, how much is but supply. But Torsten, here's what I don't and understand. This and, is and very important, what Torsten's it, saying. It is, but there's no way this is not a demand caused nominal GDP, Torsten, expanded almost 11 percent in 2021 after the rebound and almost more than 9 percent last year. How is that a supply chain driven inflation? Okay, but hold on. But how can inflation be going down now with the unemployment rate also going down? We have basically seen very little demand destruction outside the interest rate sensitive components of GDP, meaning housing, autos, durable goods. But that only makes up 20% of GDP. The service sector is still doing fine, which is 80%. So broadly speaking, the reason why inflation is coming down now is really because of the supply shocks resolving can themselves. I, can I illustrate what Torsten just said? Uh-oh. Analysis. That's what you do with the Phillips curve. Rip it up. Rip it up. There is no relation. You know, there's a joke. You, know, you ever hear the NERU, which is the yeah. non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment? There's a joke, for the, which is that nothing about inflation relates to unemployment. You've heard that before, right? The joke. It's a, it's a, it's a, but but, but could it just be what, it hasn't shown Torsten, up yet? It's possible. I just want to underscore what Torsten's saying. Torsten is underlying a fundamental difference in the outlook for inflation from the Fed and the market. And the market has embraced this idea that it's mostly supply shocks. And by the way, you can find that little piece about it in Brainerd's last speech, which you want to read, who says, if you bring down the things that caused inflation, like supply chain things, like energy things, then you will get to a place where the other things, the service sector, will come down in inflation too. And just, in case you don't see it, there's my famous map, which Mohamed Alarian made famous over the weekend, which shows the differential, how the Fed and the market were apart in June in the summer summertime, then they got together, and then they separated again. And, and it's just the market would not have the Fed's latest, uh, it rejected the Fed's latest outlook for the 2023 And, uh, and there are signs to everybody's point, Torsten. I mean, look what's going on in the energy markets right now. Signs, I don't want to call it a glut yet. Actually, that's our next segment. <laughs> but we're starting to see prices behave in a way that um, is nothing like the, the tight conditions we would have thought prevailed for the past 12 or 18 months. Even on some level, the Tesla price cuts, the Ford price cuts matching that this morning, you know, to me, it just feels like employment is going to be the last shoe to drop here. Yeah, so we're waiting for that. And obviously, jobless claims continue to tick lower. The consensus expects non-farm payrolls on Friday to be almost 200,000. So the labor market is just not cracking. Of course, there are some parts of, again, the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy are responding to higher rates. But broadly speaking, this economy is still doing fine. And if it continues to do fine and we take lower and lower on inflation, that will be, of course, the ultimate piece of evidence that this is most likely to be a soft landing. I'm just going to point to, Torsten, tell me if I'm wrong about this. What I want to see in the Friday jobs report is not so much the payroll number. I want to see duration of unemployment Mm. because I want to know if the new inputs, which I'm very sorry about, into the unemployment world 
are getting jobs quickly mm-hmm. or are they spending time on the unemployment right? Duration of unemployment went down last time. We hear the headline layoffs, but if Torsten is right about the job market remaining strong, it means these folks are going to be getting jobs relatively quickly elsewhere in the economy, which is what I hope. Also, the temp jobs, they've, they're down by over 100,000 in the that's past a ne- six That's months. a negative. For, that's a sign yeah, of weakness you, in the job market. You wonder. But, but, we'll, but look at the claims number, which is I insane. Know, but you, you can't get any better. It can only get worse. It can only get worse, don't you think? We could have 100,000. But, <laughs> but, but the other thing, again, just to that same point, and Torsh, tell me if I'm wrong about this, the continuing claims is what's not going up. It okay. tells me. Now, some people are explaining that by the, by the idea of people are getting severance, and so they're not. Right. And up on getting unemployment claims that'll be later, but we're still not seeing an increase. It's a big riddle to resolve one way or the other. Torsten, thank you. It's we our really... full employment. Yeah, Nehru. Confusion. <laughs> Torsten Slog and our own Steve Leesman. I appreciate it, guys, very, very much. As we turn to the busiest week of earnings season with 20% of the S&P reporting, let's get the action, the story, and the trade on three names that are about to report. And we'll start with NXP Semi. Got to talk about the chips here. Obviously, huge bellwether for markets, for the economy. They had a tough time last year, but they've started out well so far in January. On the heels of Intel's big miss, though, should we proceed with caution? Hmm, we ponder as we look at NXP shares down half a percent today. CNBC's Christina Partsinevelis is here with the story, and Jeff Kilberg joins us with our trades today. He's founder and CEO of KKM Financial and a CNBC contributor. Christina, what are we watching? Uh, we are looking at the fact that NXP is highly exposed to the auto segment, and that is amazing news right now, given the weakness that we've seen from other um, uh, companies like Intel and uh, Seagate, Lamb. But specifically within the auto, we actually have a graph that we can show you uh, talking about how much exposure, over 55% according to t- in 2022. So That's that not mean, good. I, I wouldn't want to well, be exposed no, to mean? the auto market right now. No. If you look, uh, Texas Instruments just last week said that auto is expected to be the only segment that's going to grow. So this could be seen as a positive for NXP, given the weakness that you're seeing in PCs, smartphones, data centers, too. So this can help offset that weakness. But having said that, you have 40, what, 45 percent where they're still exposed to uh, consumer inventories that are quite high, weakness in demand. Yes, you can say China's coming back, but how much can China really help offset this slowdown that we're seeing everywhere? And uh, just this quarter over quarter, they were expecting revenue declines for this company. So it's, it's really the auto exposure that's helping it. But at the same time, can it offset all of that weakness? I didn't realize that Texas Instruments was that positive about that Auto. segment of the market as oh, yeah. well. That was all the right. only bright spot for Texas Instruments. Which you wouldn't think. All right, Kilberg, what do you think? What would you do with the stock here? I want to be a buyer here, Kelly. And I think Christina brings up a great point. This does allow you exposure, direct, succinct exposure to the automotive market. What's interesting, when you talk about semiconductors, they've obviously been off to the races. We look at SOXX, SOX, or SMH, the two ETFs that give us broad swath exposure. But NVIDIA has been up, up, and away, up nearly 40%. But this NXP stock, we are one-tenth the size. It's a $46 billion market cap, so it's wow. a much higher beta. It's also lagged stocks over a year to date, one year, three year, five years. So I think from a trade perspective, just a year ago, Kelly, this was trading $205. I like it here. All right. I, I, I have a lot to ponder. Uh, it's fascinating as well, and we'll, we'll watch to see what they say, both for autos and for the broader market. As we turn now to Caterpillar, that's the next big name. Got to talk about it. The stock up nearly 10% so far this year. Of course, China, a main storyline here, uh, but so much more to dig, it, dig into. <laughs> You did that on purpose, Kelly. I I know that you did. Dominic Chu, uh, what are we watching? 
We're watching for whether or not it tells us anything about the global macro economy, to your point. Caterpillar is what you call a bellwether because they touch so many parts of the global construction, durable goods, heavy machinery parts of the economy that their business can tell you something about whether or not the world economy is doing okay, as is their outlook. So if you look at the numbers so far, we're talking about just about $4.02 in earnings, about 16 some odd billion dollars in overall revenues. If you take a look at those numbers, there are three main parts of the business. It is natural resources, it's energy and transportation, Mm. and it's construction. The highest growth is expected to be in natural resources, but the one that you want to pay attention to, the biggest segment, is construction. True. It's about whether or not that heavy machinery is being used. And by the way, this is a stock that hit a record high in yesterday's session. It's already up 63% since the lows that we saw in September. Right. So how much optimism is being priced in? But I will say this, The forward price to earnings ratio for Caterpillar right now is actually below the industrial sector. So it's trading at a discount despite the run up there on an earnings expectation basis. Oh, and by the way, we are expecting a 4% move up or down on earnings, which is slightly higher, more volatile than than it's been over the course of the last eight. That's pretty shocking, Dom. Appreciate it. It was a record high yesterday. Jeff Kilberg, you like Cat here? I do like Cat. I'm an owner of Cat, but I want to be a hold here due to the fact that Dom brought up we just hit all-time highs. So it's been the sensation to move higher, certainly an increased profitability and margins across all their businesses. So, yes, there's a couple different moving parts here, but that implied volatility means there's higher expectations. Whenever you see higher expectations, typically, Kelly, there's up for a miss. So if you look at the technicals, the 50-day moving average is about $240. So I may get a little greedy here and try and add my position at $250, hmm. but I can't just outright buy going into these earnings because it's done so well so fast. I, I mean, that chart since September is pretty shocking, uh, exactly to your point. All right, let's move on then to our final name today, and it's McDonald's. They report before the bell tomorrow, and of course we want this as a gauge of how the consumer is holding up, what's going on with the economy. Have we seen some trade down? Pippa Stevens insisted she get this assignment. <laughs> she said, I'm talking about McDonald's, nobody else today. Pippa, what are we watching? Well, Kelly, of course, three things here to watch. And the first, of course, as you said, is the consumer. How is that all important same store sales metric looking? Are people still eating out? Are they still going to McDonald's? And we did hear last quarter that McDonald's had started to see some trade down among its lower income consumers. So that will be a key area to watch as that trend accelerated. Also last quarter, we heard that McDonald's had actually raised their prices 10% year over year. So is that still a lever they have to pull if traffic does start to slow? Another key thing is the cost pressures. They face a number of headwinds that have eaten into their margins, including around commodity, labor, energy costs in Europe. That was a big factor during the fall. So also the stronger dollar and FX and headwinds. So have some of those started to alleviate a little bit? And then finally, accelerating the arches 2.0. That's their new plan that they outlined. Accelerating the arches? 2.0. 2.0, Kelly. It's, 2.0, it's, right. Yeah, 2.0, very important here. So that yeah. was announced earlier in January. A key part of that is unit growth. So they want to open a lot more restaurants, different kinds of restaurants. Really? They also said some staffing reductions. So they haven't really provided any clarity around what kind of jobs they're going to eliminate. So that will no doubt be a topic on the call Yeah, tomorrow. I mean, unit growth on the one hand, staffing reductions mm-hmm. on the other. Maybe it'll all be robots uh, in the future. <laughs> PE is 35 times, Jeff, nearly. What do you make of it? I'm not loving it, Kelly. Certainly, to Pippa's point, we need more clarity on that food cost as well as their labor cost inflation. And that's going to be really considered when they talk about on the earnings call. But what's interesting, we've seen same sales growth nine quarters in a row. We are expecting, though, a little bit of store sales growth to slip after the fact that it was 12.3 last quarter. So here we are with high expectations. But again, remember, it's at 52-week highs of $281. So it's very close to that 
higher move, but nonetheless, you have to wait for a pullback here. So I'm not loving McDonald's. You have to be considered, though, when you see this type of velocity and volatility in a stock that's basically traded like a utility. If you look at this according to XLU or the SPY the last couple of years, it's been a better risk profile and a very boring stock. Sometimes boring is okay, but right now going into earnings, I'm gonna have to sit on my hands on this but one. But when Kelly. you say, so for instance, we say we get a two or 3% pullback or something, is that enough for, to make you wanna get in or you think we need to see a, a much bigger pullback than that? I think we're gonna see a bigger pullback here. This is not a name I wanna know from a consumer's perspective. There's so many different ways to play it. So I'm looking for more of a three to 5% pullback to get interested. And that's where I really get excited about selling some puts because there will be higher implied volatility in the name. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you both. Jeff Kilberg and Pippa Stevens, we really appreciate it today. Coming up, the Fed is 48 hours from hiking interest rates again, but the market is already betting they'll be cutting rates before long. We'll debate what it means for stocks in the meantime. And the Fed's not the only group gathering this week. We'll look at what the OPEC Plus meeting could mean for where oil and gasoline prices go next, especially with Europe's ban on Russian barrels about to take effect. And as we head to break, let's get a quick glance at the markets on the way out, especially that 10-year yield starting this morning lower than back above 3.5%. Those gains in equities across the board, turning into losses. Dow's down 58. The exchange is back after this. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're looking at crude and natural gas. Have the energy markets already gone from shortages to gluts? Oil is sliding again today. It's below 79 barrel, while nat gas has collapsed in its worst start to the year since 2001. Now, we do have an OPEC Plus meeting on Wednesday. Could the committee already move to take barrels out of the market? Let's ask Amena Backer. She's Deputy Dubai Bureau Chief and Chief OPEC Correspondent at Energy Intelligence. Amena, it's great to see you. And um, yeah, this is a very different environment from where we were 12 months ago. What's the geopolitical impact likely to be? Um, yeah, thanks for having me on. As you said, that uh, OPEC is expected to have its uh, committee meeting on the 1st of February, and this is the first one to happen this month. Um, so they'll be reviewing the market situation, but the way we're seeing it right now is that the group is unlikely to recommend any changes to the current policy. They're pretty happy where prices are. Uh, we had the UAE energy minister recently describe oil markets as being balanced. Hmm. So it's very unlikely for this committee to um, advise the group to change course or um, uh, add more barrels or remove more barrels at this point. So 
they're, they'd rather just wait and see what happens, especially because there are a lot of uncertainties. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, sanctions coming on uh, Russian uh, uh, products on the 5th of Feb. Uh, we also have uh, Chinese demand, which is still very uh, uncertain. We don't know if the, if the lockdowns are going to be eased, etc. So given all of these factors, I think they're just going to wait and see. Sure. And there's some pretty big, you know, differing outcomes here. I mean, everyone, a lot of people are still calling for oil to spike to $100 a barrel and this and that in China. But it's like we've clearly already priced in the reopening. And I, I grant that these are, you know, physical markets where that uh, extra demand could show up in prices later on. It just feels like the bigger risk is to the downside right now. What do you think? Um I mean, what we're seeing, I mean, the, the expectation is that oil, I mean, what we've been reading from, from bankers' reports especially, is that oil might spike up uh, to $100 or, or more. Um, we're still dealing with a situation, you have to remember that there is very, very limited spare capacity left. Um, so the the risk is there. And what some traders fail to understand is really OPEC, it's not in their interest to see oil prices jump to 100 plus this destroys demand so it's in their favor to to see you know oil prices uh become less volatile stable um that's why they're kind of happy with the current environment and i don't think they're going to be making any rash changes uh to policy before uh, they see a substantial sure. change on on the demand or the supply side and we do have this i guess next week uh europe's ban on russian oil products goes into effect what are you hearing about that yeah, that's right. Uh, the 5th of February is expected, uh, the, the G7 is expecting to, to press sanctions on uh, on Russian products. Uh, this, again, is going to probably tighten up uh, the market. Um, I mean, we've uh, we've been seeing that India and China, I mean, they're unlikely to, to save Russia out mm -hmm. of the situation um, because they would be buying more more product. Um, so it's uh, it's still unclear that, that that's the the uncertainty here in the market. But psychologically, sure. you, we would see more uh, tightness in the market. And that's where you might see oil prices moving up. All right. Amena, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for your time today. Amena Bakker and what could be a very big week. Coming up, this ETF is quietly having its best month ever, thanks to some big moves and beat up tech names. We'll tell you what it is. I bet you can guess it already. Uh, we'll talk more about which names are behind the rally next. Plus, Tesla having its best month since October 2021. One, but one technician says it's time to take profits and maybe even to reshort it. Carter Worth is here with his take on the Tesla charts. And as we had to break a look at the Dow heat map, you can see only about uh, one out of three names in the green today. American Express, Goldman, Verizon leading the way. Microsoft, Chevron, J&J &J are lagging. We'll tell you what's going on with Johnson & Johnson next when the exchange comes right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Bit of a counter-trend feel here today as the Nasdaq, which has been leading the way all of January, now reversing to the downside, leading us lower by 1.3%. The Dow down 75 points. Right now at the lows, we are down 146. And of course, we started this morning with a much better risk feel. Let's check mega cap tech, though. All of those names in the red, as you might have guessed. A worst decliner, probably Microsoft down about 2%. But again, watching here for signs of momentum into the Fed meeting, what that tells us about positioning. You can tell we're braced for maybe a little bit of a hawkish uh, surprise tomorrow. Can they surprise hawkishly at this point? We'll see. Meanwhile, ARK Invest flagship, flagship ARK Innovation ETF. This was our mystery chart we showed you before the break. Maybe you've seen the numbers. I mean, they're up 25% this year. They're having their best month since inception nine years ago, even though we're taking some profits today. What's driving this? Let's look through some of the main contributors uh, to the rally in ARK-K. And you have names like Coinbase, year-to-date up 64%. Tesla, of course, we've talked about up 38%. Even Shopify chalking up about a 39% gain. We'll have more on Tesla a little bit later on. And finally, Totally elsewhere. Johnson & Johnson, we mentioned this before the break, those shares worst in the Dow, down 3.4%. A federal appeals court essentially tossed out their attempt to put those talc liabilities into bankruptcy. Remember, bankruptcy would shield the rest of the company. The company says they plan to challenge the court's ruling, but you can see investors are skittish. Perfect note to send it over to Tyler Matheson uh, for a CNBC News update. Hi, Ty. All right, thank you very much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. After a weekend of protests over the fatal beating of Tyree Nichols, a sixth Memphis police officer has been relieved of duty in connection with his death. The policeman has been identified as Preston Hemphill. NBC News has asked police officials whether Hemphill is the officer seen on video firing a stun gun at Nichols, but has yet to receive a response. The Memphis PD says the investigation is ongoing. In Pakistan, meantime, uh, the death toll from a suicide bombing attack on a mosque full of police officers has nearly doubled now. 59 reported dead, another 170 injured, many in critical condition. And in Maryland, some incredible video to show you. A police, uh, police found a car upside down after it crashed into a house. Thankfully, no one was injured. The house was empty, and the driver of the car amazingly walked away from the collision. Police believe the car drove up a hill before slamming into the house and flipping. Kelly, back to you. Horrible. Thank God that house was empty. Tyler, thanks. We'll see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, we're all watching the usual economic data for signs of recession, but there's one more barometer on people's radar right now. We'll tell you what it is after the break. And here's a hint. It also has to do with hiking. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get into the weeds a little bit. What are the data telling us about a looming downturn and what should you do with stocks in the meantime? Let's ask Margie Patel, Senior Portfolio Manager at Allspring Global Investments, and our in-house market historian, Michael Santoli, Senior Markets Commentator, who joins us as well. Well, it's great to have you both here. Margie, I'll begin with you. And there was a great piece by Sam Stovall this morning talking about how equities tend to rally between the last hike and the first cut. And maybe we've already brought some of that forward. What do you think is going on with the markets here? Uh, I think we need a little bit more patience because it isn't clear that the Fed is right on the brink of uh, being done with their tightening and that they're ready to move to ease. I think the market's got a little bit ahead of them. We can't really tell. We'll see more on Wednesday. Uh, and that all depends on the data. If the Fed sees inflation data they don't like, they may be at uh, rates higher for longer. So we think it's a little early to get too optimistic. You know, it's funny you say that because when I look through here, I see that you like technology. You like you like the semiconductors, Margie. I want to know about that. You like industrials. I just assumed that you were going to say, oh, yeah, this economy's rolling over. They're going to have to cut. Rates are going to be supportive. So why do you like these sectors right now? 
Well, I think those are the concerns that have kept the sectors <clears throat> from really doing as well as they could looking at fundamentals. I think for semiconductors, you do need to be patient here and have a strong stomach because they're volatile. And it may take another couple quarters to work off all the excess inventory. But then we think the sectors will be pretty well positioned to have nice growth. And many semiconductors now pay rather attractive dividends, so you at least get a dividend while you wait. And I think the industrial sector, I think they're going to benefit from a stronger industrial activity as we have more capital expenditures. And as we see a long-term move for reshoring to the U.S., sure. uh, U.S. companies are also very competitive globally. So we think those sectors are attractive and uh, reflect too much concern about the recovery. Mike, I, I guess we could boil this all down to should people be selling the rallies right now because a worse event is coming? Normally, rate cuts are not a great sign. Um, or can they can they think to themselves, no, the the worst of it is already priced in and it can be clear sailing from here? Yeah. And Kelly, I think you honestly come down the middle of those two scenarios. In other words, a lot of it is priced in. Last year, you really did pretty radically revalue some of the highest growth sectors of the market. Uh, you kind of absorbed this historic pace of Fed tightening. We're now sitting here with investment grade yields kind of clearing in the four to five ish percent, four to six percent range. And it seems like corporate America can handle it right now because of the starting point, which was under levered. And they made, basically made use of the very generous capital markets for a while. So I think right here, it's not as if the market is cheap, but if it's essentially we're going to avert the worst type of uh, economic downturn, especially if it's really rolling through parts of the economy and not the not the whole thing. I'm very wary of all of the, the kind of textbook. Here's how things go right. at the end of a tightening cycle or anything else, because this cycle has been so unusual. No, and it's true. I, I guess, though, this morning it caught my attention over at Deutsche Bank. They're saying that they're turning cautious on credit. And the reason is that yes. if you are sort of bearish on the back half with the economy and everything else going now, credit has been one of the places people are piling in because they're like, wow, double digit yields practically on parts of, you know, corporations. We don't think there's any chance of default in the next five years. And, and they're starting to think maybe that's overdone. I can't help but extend that to equities. You know, why would you be chasing a stock market rally right now when someone higher up on the capital structure is saying we wouldn't necessarily be chasing uh, credit? Right. Well, except that the dollars are chasing credit. And <laughs> the people who are looking at what, what, what you, whether you're being compensated for that risk, I think a lot of them are saying, really not. Uh, there's no margin of safety there at the moment. So it is a tricky spot. 18 times forward earnings for the S&P. It's not exactly washed out, right? Yeah. That's where we are uh, sitting. On the other hand, at the beginning of bull markets, and there has been some behavioral stuff this year in terms of how the market has behaved, that suggests at least a possibility that things could take off a little bit better to the upside. Nobody believes it's, it's, it's ready to happen, right? So that's the other tricky piece of it. Final word uh, to you, Margie. What would you say to somebody who was more concerned about a bigger slowdown in the back half? Uh, well, I think that really the risk is with the Fed. If the Fed continues to overreact and over-tighten, that is a real risk for the market. But we think that this cycle is very different because we don't have any cycle that's really out of kilter, like housing back in 08, uh, like the Internet bubble, like energy bubbles we've had in the past. The economy is pretty well balanced. It's really these uh, big swings in interest rates on the part of the Fed. So fundamentally, the economy is in good shape. And so we think that uh, any recession will be pretty mild. All right, Margie, thank you. I appreciate it, Margie Patel. Michael, before I let you go, can we indulge in my favorite, maybe your least favorite uh, annual exercise here? <laughs> so we have we have two teams going to the Super Bowl now in two weeks to hear about the Super Bowl indicator. And, you know, you tell me whether we need to pay attention to it. Who who wins and it's a bad thing? 
Okay, so the traditional original version of the Super Bowl indicator was if a team that was from the original NFL, the original National Football League, wins, it was supposed to be bullish for the market. That's not to be confused with the, the NFC conference, which is what we have oh. now, the split, the AFC-NFC. So the, and the reason for that, by the way, is this indicator was sort of stumbled upon in the late 70s, and it had never failed right. up to that point. Of course, at that point, there had only been about a dozen Super Bowls, <laughs> and the Steelers had won three of them. And they're an AFC team, but they were original NFL. So you can see the level of data mining <laughs> even at the beginning. However, up until about the year 2000, it still had a really high hit rate. It's random. It's completely non-predictive, but it was like a 90% hit rate. Wow. Since then, it's been a mess. It's missed like six of the last seven years. Uh, like so many other things, so it, we can blame the Patriots, by the way, because <laughs> they kept winning uh, Super Bowls. They're from the old AFL, and the market goes up more years than down. I was going to say, if it's so bad, is it getting to the point that it's good again if you just flip it and do uh, what would be the new version then? You know, if, if you want to just go completely contra, uh, you know, last year it, it should have been a bullish year for the market because the Rams won. And so this year, I guess, you know, you choose it. Uh, if the Chiefs, the traditional version is, Chiefs winning this year would be bearish for stocks and, and vice versa for the Eagles. But, you know, if you want to turn it upside down, then, I uh, do. you know, you can fade it. I do. I think I think Mahomes winning would be bullish for America. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Eagles. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And by the way, there are many things uh, every year that I that I enjoy less than it. So yeah. this is, this is <laughs> this, no problem. This isn't all. even top five. Yeah, we'll talk Santa That's Claus right. rally next. Mike, thank That's you. Right. Uh, have a great right. show. We'll see you. Mike Santoli coming up on Closing Bell. He will also be ex speaking exclusively with tech investor Dan Niles. Not Super Bowl. They're going to talk market, Fed, and more. That's at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Still ahead, extremely attractive. We'll tell you where one big shop is putting money to work overseas and whether there's still room to buy next. And as we head to break, here's a look at the sector heat map. You just heard Mark talking about a different field today. We have staples in the green, one of the only groups, utilities as well. Energy, technology are the worst performers. The Exchange will be right back. If you think this year has been good for the S&P 500, you should see what's going on in Europe and China, as you can get a hint there from the uh, charts. And Morgan Stanley says international markets are still looking extremely attractive. Seema Modi is here with more. Seema. It's been a big story, Kelly, this year. The case for investing outside of the U.S. continues to gather fuel. Morgan Stanley's $14 billion emerging market fund saying uh, emerging markets have been underloved for too long, pointing to years of underperformance. Europe, Latin America are outperforming the S&P 500 this year. Yet each of these international markets are trading at a cheaper valuation than the S&P 500. We ran through the numbers. If you look at Europe, for example, trading at 14 times earnings, Latin America at six. The S&P 500 is at 18 times earnings right now. In Asia, as we know, China has been a bright spot as the country pushes through with these reopening, reopening plans. The FXI up about 14 percent this year, yet only trading at nine times earnings. So that's a discount to the emerging market ETF and the Nasdaq, which is at 25 times earnings. Uh, Evercore ISI. They still expect Chinese listed ADRs to outperform. They're betting on the earnings story to be stronger in China compared to the U.S., adding that as the U.S. sees margins squeezed due to a softer economy, China's will expand. Uh, and just take a look at Alibaba, the biggest cons constituent in the K-Web ETF, now up about 90 percent from its 52-week low hit back in October of last year, set to report earnings next month. And maybe we'll get that reality check the market wants. These Kelly. are some incredible runs. I mean, so, not to be a spoil sport all the time about this, but 
you wonder if we're going into a global recession. I know. Okay. You know, maybe China holds it. Maybe they have a better cushion because they're only at nine times, to your point. Do we have any data on the reopening so far? So we do. We knew data from Goldman Sachs overnight that shows that holiday spending and travel data over the last week of Lunar New Year actually is holding up pretty well. Uh, the number of national domestic visitors uh, increased to 89% of pre-pandemic levels. Movie box office revenue uh, during the Golden Week last week reached the second highest on record. So there are different data points that suggest the consumer is getting out there and they're spending. It's, we'll see if it holds up. Well, right? it, let's put it this way. It justifies the, the rally. I mean, arguably the markets are a little bit ahead of this, maybe in September and October pricing. In, and I just wonder now if we've gotten too excited about it. You know, that's that's all. It's, it's euphoria. If you look at the big gains we've seen over the last four weeks, and I think that's why the earnings season will provide a much needed reality check, uh, not just for these Chinese stocks to see if they're able to now see profits grow with consumers spending more, uh, but even the industrial side of the economy, too. Is that starting to help uh, the, the GEs and the caterpillars of the world. And in Europe, not to sort of gloss over it, yes, they're getting help from the China reopening, but also the energy story there. No, who would have thought we'd be better. here? It's, it's, you know, prices are so low, we're practically talking about gluts of nat gas now. It's crazy, a huge bailout for them. And that's why for a country like Germany, a lot of it has to do with expectation. In October, is a, in October it was a very different story going into the winter. How are they going, how are they going to make this energy crisis uh, come to an end? But here we are where the story drastically changed. And with that, uh, we've seen a nice outperformance in Europe yeah. and, and Germany specifically. Absolutely. Uh, people talk about it. They ask about it all the time. Seema, thank you. Yep. Seema Modi. Still ahead, Tesla shares have surged almost 40% just in January, but this ride is far from on autopilot. And in fact, one technician who called the run back in December now says you should hit the brakes. Override. That's next. Speaking of Tesla, it's one of the worst performers in the NASDAQ 100 today, whereas the stocks we were just talking about, Pinduoduo, JD.com, they're also struggling only about a what we call this a fifth of the names are in the green right now. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tesla rounding out its best month in more than a year with the shares surging almost 40%. But one technician with a pretty good track record on Tesla is sounding caution. Carter Worth called the drops from June to November, urging investors repeatedly to sell or go short. He reversed course in late December before the recent run, saying to nibble long. Remember when we talked about that? Now he says it's time to take some profits on the trade and maybe even short it again. Let's bring in Carter. He is the CEO of Worth Charting. So, Absolutely. This caught our attention, Carter. And and why do you, I mean, there's a difference between, you know, hey, it, it's going to stop going up and hey, it could fall precipitously. What, what do you glean? Well, I mean, so to be fair, right, this is almost turned into just a gambling chip before we even talk about the charts. What we know is, of course, you're talking about a stock that now is trading three million contracts a day in the options uh, daily. That's almost seven percent of all options traded, according to CBOE data. And we also know that if you think about the volume, 100, 200 million shares on, on Friday, 10% of the entire uh, shares outstanding turned over. And over the past six months, the shares outstanding, some 3.2 billion, turned over three times. Hmm. Um, it's just a wild ride. And so I think it's the kind of thing where one has to have or try to have dexterity and hence this these judgments to buy it or sell it accordingly. And look, uh, the, the first timing, well, it was nice to be short. It wasn't great getting long at 138. It went down as low as 102. Now, right. yes, it did hit 177. That's where we've flipped it around again. But it just feels a little bit uh, crowded, steep, 
um, too far, too fast, news-related, uh, if you will, the strength of the past three, four, five days. Sure. And so now we have people looking at whether they should take the other side of this, worried they're going to experience what you just talked about, which is that the stock goes up another 30%. Right. It's, it, it's ever thus, right? So you've got people, think about it, you've got people who've got a happy experience, three or four good trades, people who've ruined themselves, got it wrong each time. And, and it's, it's why this is so treacherous. But it has literally become the um, most active option and the most uh, sort of widely followed to think that the options activity now exceeds that of the queues, which, of course, is always wow. sort of top spot. Anyway, to my eye, it's a rally to a difficult level. And I think the player, if you're long, is to is to exit. And with new money, I would be short. Yeah, and I'm just looking at this as a very high beta name. I kind of take that, I would maybe take that a step further and ask you about the broader market. You know, we talked about, are we going to kind of head over a cliff come January? Is it because we're talking so much about a Fed cut that the markets have suddenly reversed course and started to take off again? What's remarkable is, so where we're trading right now is where we're trading at the end of November, hmm. which is to say we've effectively repaired all of the December loss. And so the question is, we're kind of unch now, uh, and that's giving fuel or, or uh, confidence to both the bulls and the bears. And in many ways, is it this week's data, the earnings out of Apple and, and Google and Amazon that will inform the market or the Fed or other data? But we're, we're at a critical juncture. My bias remains that we are headed lower, not higher. That's what I was going to ask. There's two camps. There's the camp that says, you know, I love the rallies because I'm looking to get out and I, and I want to sell these, you know, it, these opportunities, basically, the market is presenting. And then there are those who think, no, we've already priced the worst of this. And we just heard Margie Patel and others who think we can either avoid recession or it'll just be mild or we might have a soft landing. And so in this case, they think it's sort of, you know, clear sailing from here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, clear sailing seems tough. Uh, I think it's probably tough sailing. Or, or said differently, even if and as the market goes higher, it won't be easy, right? It will be belabored and 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 heavy, uh, struggling. It's not the kind of situation, by my work, where even if we are headed higher, it's going to be something aggressive. It, it would likely be fairly muted. And again, my thinking is that we've already moved quite a bit to the point where uh, sellers are once again likely to return to the market. Fair enough. Looking across the sectors, there's a little bit of confusion here as well. We've seen places like technology ripping um, at the same time, usually uh, between kind of the last Fed hike and the first cut, you tend to see things that are more like real estate and financials doing quite well. Can you just kind of talk to us about how you'd look at the sectors right now on a day when we're having a big counter trend move where staples are leading the way and now technology and energy are, are the laggards? Right. So the true defensive areas, staples, healthcare, utilities have been under a lot of pressure as there's been rotation into the more cyclical areas of the market. You've seen the strength in industrials, financials to some extent, depending on which area within the sector. Um, but the most sort of curious is that very early cycle consumer names, restaurants, retailers, have really acted well. Hmm. And yet that would not make sense if you can say that in the context of a prospective slowdown still ahead. So it just shows, and I think uh, we were discussing that with uh, uh, earlier, that you know the playbooks that are so relied on are never that reliable. Yeah, no, that's exactly <laughs> what I was just thinking about. Carter, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Carter Worth. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 